Um, if uh, this is your first time with us or you haven't had a chance to get one yet uh, and you would like a scripture journal, you can just raise your hand and we'll have somebody bring uh, a judge's scripture journal to you. Uh, that's our free gift to you. We want you to be able to follow along in the word of God with us and just take notes. So just raise your hand if you want a free gift. No, no strings attached. We just believe strongly in God's word here and want you to have it in your hand. Clearly, as you could tell by the reading of that story this morning, uh, we believe strongly in the full counsel um, of the word of God. And let me just say this, right? Um, I, I heard some laughter during during uh, the scripture reading this morning. Uh, this is a, a, a fun, I guess that's the term you would use, fun little narrative. Um, and, and I'm going to enjoy diving into this text this morning because I, I, passages like this are are one of the reasons... Uh, I, I love the Bible so much um, because, I mean, here's the reality of a story like this, right? It's kind of funny, you know, um, it's crazy, and it's also kind of not funny. Uh, it's harsh, uh, there's deception and, and murder going on in it, and, and stories like this and, and many in the Old and New Testaments, uh, for that matter, can, can present actually a, a potential problem or objection uh, for a skeptic of God and his word. And so I, I want to I kind of just spend a second talking about that because a common objection I have heard over the years uh, in ministry from skeptics kind of goes something like this. It, you know, it's, hey, I, I, you know, I hear you. I, I know that you guys believe the Bible is authoritative. I know that you believe the Bible is the word of God, but I, I just can't believe in a God whose text, you know, claims that he's good, and yet his word talks about horrible atrocities constantly. Anybody ever heard somebody raise that objection before or whatever? Yeah, there's a couple of us in the room, right? Maybe some of you even have that objection or have had that objection before. Um, and, you know, take for example, by the way, so this past week I was thinking through this, this story and that objection that I hear frequently, especially with stories like this one. Uh, so I ran over to the American Humanist Association website, not a place I spend a ton of time, but... Um, I knew that they would have a take on, on stuff like this, and so I want, I want to share with you what they say about why they reject the Bible in regards to like cruelty and justice. They say, humanists also reject the Bible because it approves of outrageous cruelty and injustice. In civilized legal systems, a fundamental principle is that suffering of the innocent is the essence of injustice. Yet the Bible teaches that God repeatedly violated this moral precept by harming innocent people, right? So at first we can say like innocent people like Eglon, right? The king of Moab, right? I think like oftentimes when, when we hear objections like the one I said earlier or like what I just read for you guys by the American Humanist Association, I think probably the first thing we need to do if you would consider yourself to be a disciple of Jesus in here this morning is, is kind of say this. It is fair to ask questions about things and object to, to things and, and, and maybe push back on things at times. At the same time, um, you know, because think about it for a second. Horrible stuff happens in the Bible. I would argue, by the way, the most horrible thing that happens in the Bible happens towards each of the end of the gospel accounts. It's one of the greatest atrocities in human history that we read about. But there's some horrible things that, that, that we are faced with. One of the things to think through is this, though. Just because horrible things happen doesn't necessarily mean that the objection itself is correct. Right? For, like, for example, I, I believe there are right and reasonable answers to the objection that I stated for you guys earlier. 
some, some of which you, you may even hear throughout the, the text this morning, either implicitly or explicitly. But, but for example, just to the objection that I just read from the American Humanist Association. That's a, that's a fair claim to make, except that we understand, Christians suppose that the Bible is the word of God, and the word of God presupposes that there is no such thing as an innocent human. Now, you can not like that. Like, you, you are completely within your rights to say, well, I don't, I, don't, I don't care for that take. That's fine. You're not God. But, but the Bible pre, presupposes that every human being was born in sin because of the curse of Adam. So, so therefore, right, that claim actually doesn't hold true because it's supposing something about Scripture that Scripture doesn't suppose about the world around it. Right, and this is why it's really, really important to understand and know God's word fully so that when objections and things arise, we can think about them critically and intelligently. And so what I find to be ironic, though, by that objection. So like if you're here this morning, you're like, actually, I have that objection. Right? I, I want to challenge you here for just a second, or if you know someone that, that has that objection, I want to challenge you, is that many people will, re will reject the possibility of reading the Bible or taking it seriously because of the cruelty that's taught in it, and yet will later consume through music, television, movies, video games, reading choices, the very same material they claim they want nothing to do with. Like, I'm, I'm okay with that objection if you're going to be logically consistent for me. Right? Like, and here's how I know I'm right at pushing back on this. Right? A simple IMDB search this past week gave for me the most popular television shows in the last 20 years. Right? Here are eight of the top ten. Number one, by the way, was uh, that Malcolm in the Middle show. Yeah. Some of you guys probably don't even know what that is. It's old. Right? People apparently love that guy. All right. Number two was The Sopranos. You had Sons of Anarchy, Breaking Bad. Right? Just really, really loving stuff here. Narcos, Game of Thrones, Dexter. The watchers of that show were like, uh, Right? Uh, True Detective, and then because Narcos wasn't enough, we needed the Mexican version of it so that we could get more murder. Right? He here's my point on this, guys. It's a double standard. Right? We're all being discipled by stuff each and every day. Right? What we consume, whether it's YouTube, television, the news, reading, whatever it may be. Right? And so my my pushback is is just this. Right? One, this is a double standard, and, and, and people don't actually believe that, that that is a reason to have an objection. They have an objection to being told that there's an authority over their lives, and we don't want to deal with it. And number two, right, the very objection that they use, they, it's a double standard because they actually give into and love violence to an extent. I mean, human beings have loved violence for, for years and years. Right? It's something kind of odd and weird about us. Right? We had the Colosseum, right? We have UFC. Sorry, football. I, I love, by the way, love football. Pretty violent, right? Like this. This is just kind of how we are. And one of the reasons I actually look at a story like the story of Ehud and Eglon, and I look at it and I say, I actually appreciate the scriptures because of their raw and authenticity. The rawness and their authenticity to me is something that actually makes it more believable, not less believable. 
right? Even ones that show Israel's oppressor, a fat and evil king being stabbed and betrayed, right? Because it's real and authentic about what God's doing. And so this morning, we're going to look at two separate judges throughout Judges chapter 3. These are the, the first two judges that are recorded of many throughout the book of Judges. Othniel and Ehud. And we're going to notice kind of three things in our text this morning. The first one is this. We're going to notice Israel's sin, sinfulness, God's discipline, and Israel's cry for mercy. The second thing we're going to see is God's sovereignty in all things as we look at these two stories. And then we're going to see that God delights in rescuing his people. So look at Judges chapter 3, starting at verse 7 with me. And we're going to see kind of that first point, Israel's sinfulness, God's discipline, and Israel's cry for mercy. Look at just those first couple of verses, starting at verse 7 with me. It says, And the people of Israel did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. They forgot the Lord their God and served the Baals and the Asheroth. Therefore, the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel. And he sold them into the hand of Kushan Rishathaim, king of Mesopotamia. And the people of Israel served Kushan Rishathaim eight years. But when the people of Israel cried out to the Lord, the Lord God raised up a deliverer for the people of Israel who saved them, Othniel, the son of Kenaz, Caleb's younger brother. The spirit of the Lord was upon him and he judged Israel. He went out to war and judged. He went out to war and the Lord gave Kushan Rishthaim, king of Mesopotamia, into his hand. And his hand prevailed over Kushan Rishthaim. So the land had rest 40 years. Then Othniel, the son of Kenaz, died. So I, I, I've been saying this for two weeks and we're finally now into the section of this book where we're hitting specific individual stories and, and specific individual judges. But I said that there's going to be a lot of repeating themes over and over in this book as we study it together. And one of them is this line, right, that we see here in verse 7. And the people of Israel did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. You, you're going to lose count of how many times we hear, hear and see those lines. Actually, and if you keep going, you're going to see it probably in First and Second Samuel, First uh, and Second Kings, First and Second Chronicles. It's just a frequent theme of Israel throughout their history. And they run after the Baals and the Asheroth. And if you want to know more about them, you can go listen to the sermon from last week. I talked about that a little bit. But ultimately what, what is being said there as the, the author shares with us is that the first and second commandments are being violated by Israel at this point. That they are in direct defiance and disobedience of what God had told them to do. And that Israel had turned away from the God who had delivered them in the first place and begun worshiping idols. And if you look at verse 8, what you notice in the narrative is that God's discipline comes quickly for Israel. Right? God sends this guy by the name of Kushan Rishathaim, right? which in Hebrew, say that 10 times fast by the way. In Hebrew, this is what that word means, Kushan of double wickedness. So whoever he was, not a good dude. Like that, like that's basically what the, the author of Judges is trying to get across to you. It's like, yeah, the Kushan, the leader of the, uh, the tribes of Mesopotamia, not a good guy. Like there's like wicked and then there's double wicked. That's what he was. 
And it says that Israel was forced to serve him for eight years. So here basically is kind of like what the author of the book of Judges is trying to present to Israel, who would be reading this later on, and then us, you know, thousands of years later. He's trying to get us to say this. Israel has been delivered from Egypt and then delivered into the promised land by God. They had done, God had done exactly what he had promised he wanted to do for them. And kind of the, the one thing he had said to them, and he'd said this to Moses, is like, if you honor me, if you follow me, if you show uh, loyalty to me and serve me only, it will go well with you. If you do not do that, it will not go well with you. Very simple, black and white terms. Follow me. I will bless you. Choose not to follow me. You're not going to like the outcome. And sure enough, right? At this point, we've seen Israel turn and run from God. And so basically, God is allowing them to be handed over into the king of Mesopotamia's hands. And he's saying, look, you want to serve their gods? Here's what it's going to look like, right? You want to follow the gods of the tribes and the nations around you? You want to run after things that are not me? You want to serve things that are not me? You will reap what you sow. Oppression, slavery, War, strife, economic downfall, the list can go on and on and on. But Israel's actually being given by God the very thing that they want, and that's him not being involved. And I, I said last week, and it's something that I'm going to bring up frequently throughout our time in Judges together. There's probably no one in this room here this morning who has an idol to bail in their living room or serves the Asheroth. But that doesn't mean that idols are not all around us each and every day. Right? It doesn't have to be a carved statue. Right? It doesn't have to be some sort of idol that we put in the corner of our home. Right? Idols can take the form of relationships, money, wealth, power, Celebrity. And when God gives us over to our idols, the results in the long term are always heartache and slavery. Just like it was for Israel here in Judges chapter 3. And guys, I'm not just saying that because that's some cute theme to pull out of the text. I've been in pastoral ministry and done ministry with enough people to know, like, that is a fact of life. Like when God gives you over to the things you run after that are not him, I can, I can guarantee you what the results are going to yield you. And so what happens here, right, is you, you see them turn from God, and so God disciplines them, and he disciplines them in the form of turning them over to their enemies nearby. And inevitably... Right? What happens when things aren't going well in life or you're getting disciplined? How do you respond? Ah! <laughs> right? I don't like this. Right? And that's exactly what Israel does. Israel cried out because here's, here's the reality, guys. Discipline is designed to correct bad behavior or realities and bring it back to life. Right? Any parent knows that if you, if, you, if you have a kid, right, so especially parents of young kids, if you have a kid who doesn't share, what are you going to do? 
You're going to correct them and discipline them and teach them they need to share with other kids. Right? Now, there's all sorts of reasons for that. But the biggest one is this. Right? If that child does not learn how to operate with other people, does not learn how to share, does not learn how to be a part of a group, does not learn to, to be agreeable and likable around other people, that kid will grow up struggling to make friends. They won't receive help from others. They won't be fun to be around. And so not disciplining or correcting poor behavior in a young child is actually setting them up for a lifetime of misery and future problems. That's why, I, you know, like, parents know what I'm talking about. Like, you can always just go to the playground really quick and find out who the parent is, the child or the parent, by hanging out at a playground. And I remember one time we were, we were at the playground, and I was with my kids, and I was talking to this, this mom that was there, and, and Gideon, my, my oldest, was playing around with their kid, and I was just like, hey, Gideon, three minutes, and then we're heading out. I'm like, okay, Dad. Went back to whatever he's doing, whatever, and she's like, how do you get him to do that? And I was like, well, he knows he doesn't come back to the park again if he doesn't listen to me. She's like, oh, like, you can just tell your kid, like, to listen? <laughs> Dude, he's four. Yeah. Like, believe it or not, we don't want to follow him. You know, like, he was just potty trained, like, three, three months ago. Like, I, I don't want him in charge of the house. And she's like, well, how do you do that? It's like, there's consequences if he doesn't listen. Oh. It's like this earth-shattering moment for her, like, right there at Possum Creek Park in North Gainesville. And then she comes over, and she's like, her daughter comes over and is like, she's like, hey, we're going to probably leave when they leave. This girl's like just, no! I'm like scooting down the bench. <laughs> right? And, and that's funny to sit here and laugh about, right? If that behavior doesn't get corrected, guess what that angry little four-year-old turns into? A teenager that no one wants to be around. And then an adult no one wants to be around who can't hold down a job because they can't get along with their coworkers who doesn't do their work in their group projects. Students, yes and amen? <laughs> what corrects that? Discipline. Your parents, kids, if you have parents in here this morning and they discipline you, you should like, now's the time to look at them and be like, thank you. Thank you. And like, I've got some very happy parents in the room this morning. Right? Guys, discipline is designed by God to be helpful to correct behavior for future blessing. That's exactly what God is doing to Israel here. Knowing that the idols that they run to are the very things that will rob them of the joy and freedom that they desire. So he disciplines them and corrects them so they might cry out and look and return to him. Right? God disciplines Israel, gives them over to Kushan to help them realize what happens when they don't obey his commands to serve him only. They rob themselves of the very joy, freedom, and life that they desire. The abundant life that God promised them in the Mosaic Covenant. And here's the beautiful thing, right? At least partially, right? We could sit here and we're not going to debate this this morning. But the results of God's discipline to them through the king of Mesopotamia is they kind of get it. Like, okay, whoa, whoa, whoa. Maybe I didn't like all the things God told me to do, but that was definitely better than the double wickedness guy. Not a fan. 
And so they cry out to God. It doesn't say they repent. It doesn't say they start doing all the things they're supposed to do. They just cry out to God. It's like, mercy. God, we're sorry. Show mercy on us. And God answers. The first judge we see God raise up is a guy by the name of Othniel. And you, you actually heard his name earlier in Judges chapter 1. He's one of the few guys that actually does what God tells them to do when they enter into the Holy Land. His name means Lion of God. He was the son of Kenaz, who was Caleb's younger brother. And Caleb actually ends up becoming his father-in-law because he did what he was supposed to do. And Caleb had pledged his daughter to whoever took the land. And when God raises up this judge, I want you to notice, right, that he, he doesn't spend a ton of time talking about Othniel, right? He says that God raised him up, right, used him to deliver him, and then this is the only other piece of information they really give us, that he judges, and the Spirit of God was on him, and because of that, God gives them what? Forty years of what? Rest. No war, no famine, no slavery, rest. God rescues them for no other reason than that he pitied them and he chose to. So what we see here is that Israel's, dis we see Israel's disobedience, but in response to their disobedience, we see God's discipline and we see God's mercy to Israel. Because that's how God operates. That is exactly how God deals with his people, the church, today. It's the same God. Looks, it looks slightly different, but it looks the same way. Right? When we fail to obey, when we know the clear commands of God in Scripture, one of the best things that, that, that God does is that he uses the Holy Spirit and the life of a Christian, and he uses community of brothers and sisters in the church, the body of Christ, to convict and discipline you into obedience. It's a gift. It's like when people come and confess sin to me, that's kind of one of the parts of my job, and people come and they'll just tell me something like, I feel so terrible. I'm like, praise God. Like being broken over your sin and hating it, guys, is not, is not terrible. It's a gift. It's a gift from God to reveal to you something is wrong. This is bad. The same way when you have a bacterial or viral infection and your body panics and you feel bad, right? It's your body saying, hey, something's up. Go rest. Take some medicine. Drink some fluids. Eat. When the spiritual condition of your soul is heading down a path that it shouldn't be and God by the power of the Holy Spirit and through people in the church, the body of Christ convict you, that is a gift from God because he loves you and is disciplining you and calling you back to him. Discipline is corrective and loving, not punitive and punishing. God is still doing this for us. And the thing we pull out of this is we, is we worship God thankful that he disciplines and displays mercy to us as children. And he simply calls us to cry out for mercy the way that Israel does. 
Now, something I want us to look at, right, as we kind of saw that pattern there and that, that first narrative of Othniel, the first judge that we see here, is there's something kind of cool in both of these stories, the one that Brent read for us earlier and the one that I just read for you, and, that, and that's this, that we see God's sovereignty in every aspect of this story. Like if, you, if you go back and look, I, w- I want to point this out to you because I, I think it can be easy for us to write off the power and attention to detail God gives every single aspect of this story and kind of just bring some assumptions into the text that probably shouldn't be there. Like if you look at these verses, look at verse nine, right? In verse nine, it says that God raised up and sent Othniel, right? So it's easy, oh yeah, God is sovereign there, right? God did that, right? Of course he did, right? He's, he's, he's trying to rescue Israel. Those are his people. He loves them. He's sovereign over them, right? He, he raises up that leader. If you look at verse 10, it says that God's spirit was on Othniel as he led. Right, and he led them to rest. Right, God is sovereign there. He's, he's leading them out of the misery and suffering that they're in. If you look at verse 15 down in the, in the next story right, that, that was read for us earlier, right, God raises up another deliverer, right, Ehud. Right, God raises him up to deliver Israel. If you go down to verse 28, right, he says, Follow after me, for the Lord has given your enemies, the Moabites, into your hand. That's Ehud speaking to Israel, telling them to go and, and get Eglon and the Moabites out of the land. He said, God has raised me up. God is sovereign. He sovereignly called me to lead you. And what comes from that is 80 years of rest, right? God is sovereignly doing these things. It's easy to see that. But there's also some things in this text that are a little bit harder to swallow. Look at verse 8 with me. Therefore, the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel and what? And he sold them into the hand of Kushan Rishathaim, king of Mesopotamia. And the people of Israel served Kushan Rishathaim eight years. Go down to verse 12. And the people of Israel again did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. Shocker. And the Lord strengthened Eglon, the king of Moab, against Israel, because they had done what was evil in the sight of the Lord. It's easy to see God's sovereignty when he's doing things that you like or would expect him to do. Primarily blessing. It's much more difficult to reconcile God's sovereignty in things that we don't like. Yet this is precisely what the Bible teaches us about God. He is in charge of everything. And that includes Wicked, evil world leaders that he has allowed to be in power. Right? God's sovereignty is seen in the deliverers and judges that he raises up to save Israel, but it is also seen in the wicked kings and leaders he uses to discipline his people and call them back to him. And let me just say this, right? Because you might be able to hear a pin drop right now. Because I know, like, especially for those of us that grew up in the West, and we have, like, this rugged individualism, and we have some thoughts about God and, 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 and how this goes and, and whatever else. This is, like, this, it is really hard to be told anything you choose to do is only allowed to be done because the hand of God allows it. That's, that's a tough pill to swallow sometimes, and I, I, I hear you on that. But let me just say something to you guys. It's actually really good news. 
It might be the best news you hear all week. That God is sovereign over everything. It means that when life is going well and showering you with blessings, like the seasons of rest that Israel went into, and that God is in control of that, 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 that's good. But it also means that if you are in a season of suffering or difficulty through no fault of your own, it still means that God is sovereign over it and can deliver you from it. And it also means that if you are in a season of suffering or difficulty because you've been put there by your own unwillingness to listen and follow after God and God is lovingly disciplining you to allow you to see that you've run after things that are not for your joy but are meant to rob you of joy, that God is in control to forgive you and release you as well. This means that no matter who your boss is, your neighbor, your difficult family member, or even your government leaders, God is in control of everything. I love this quote from Dale Ralph Davis, whose commentary has helped me tremendously as I've gone through this book. He says, no one wears the political pants of history unless Yahweh issues them to him. And so the response to this is that instead of running to complain or whine when things around us are unjust and unrighteous, we need to examine ourselves to see whether we're truly obeying God or not. And then we cry out to him, mercy, please deliver us the same way that Israel did. And if you think that this is unique to just this time period for the Israelites, go read the Psalms. You will see David over and over again, a man after God's own heart, crying out, mercy, God, have mercy on me. My enemies surround me. Because God knows the best place for us is a place of dependence upon him. And the real lesson that we're seeing in the book of Judges is that Israel fails to realize that dependence in God is the way forward. Which brings us right to our third and final point this morning. Right, we see Israel's rebellion and God's discipline. We see God's sovereignty in all things. But then lastly, we see this. God delights in rescuing his people. See, we see that Israel has been oppressed by the king of Mesopotamia and then Eglon of the Moabites. And if you don't know anything about the Moabites, interesting story about them. Moab was a, a tribe uh, in, in the Holy Land. And uh, Moab was actually a, a descendant from the same line as Abraham. Uh, Moab was a son of Lot, who was Abraham's nephew. We read about him back in Genesis. And he... He's got an interesting story. He was actually born of incest between Lot and his daughters. Uh, if you guys know anything about that, um, Lot's wife dies when they're leading, leaving Sodom and Gomorrah and God has destroyed the city. And as they're, as they're heading out, his, his wife turns back when she's told not to and is turned to, to stone and ash immediately on the spot. And so they get outside of the city and God rains destruction on it and, and Lot's daughters don't have husbands. And it's like, hey, it's a great shame on us to not have kids. Like, what will we do? And so they get dad drunk and they sleep with him. 
Again, this is why I say all the time, like, the Bible is, like, not, like, safe. <laughs> right? Like, it's like an episode of, like, Maury Povich or, or something like that, not something you would expect to read in a biblical holy text. And what ends up happening from that is this guy Moab is born, and, you know, you would think, right, hey, family, they should get along, right? There should be, like, cooperation, right? What ends up happening is, like, they end up being at each other's throats throughout human history. And so I want you to remember that both times that Israel in, in our text this morning enters into oppression and, and seasons of suffering and slavery, they were there because they had chosen to ignore God's command. So it wasn't as if God was like, you know, I just feel like putting these guys under some slavery for a little bit. You know, that's, that's kind of what I'm feeling this morning. No, he, he looks at them and he says, okay, look, you guys have chosen to, obey, to disobey me. You have chosen to disobey prophets or people that I've raised up for you time and time again. Here comes some discipline. Right? The same way that in our house, right, anytime our kids have been given a command right, and they choose not to follow through with or we, we, you know, when, you get, when you're parents for a while, you can just kind of tell. Like you tell your, your kids to do something, you know like when the pushback's coming. Right? And I'll, I'll just look at it and be like, you have two options. Right? The option is to do what I said, or the option is to not do what I said, be disciplined, and then do what I said. You can choose. You do have two options. Still have some freedom. You choose which one you want to do. That's how God operates with Israel. So you got two options. Right? Well, they're like, I choose the second one. All right, bad call. Right? And they step into these seasons of self-inflicted pain and slavery. Right? They cry out in mercy. Hey, and most of the time, right, here's the natural thing. Here's the weird thing about being a parent, right? When, like, you see your kids make the decision that chooses not to obey you, and, you're, and it, there is, like, this weird tug of, like, oh, gosh, they're so dumb. And you see them, like, fully sitting in the reality of their consequences, and you want to rescue them so badly, but you need them to sit in it a little bit. It's like... Gideon, my oldest son especially, like most of the time, like he's crying before the consequence even comes. And we'll, we'll sit there with him and I'll be like, like, do I even need to like follow through on the correction? And the answer is yes. Right? Otherwise, a different type of behavior gets encouraged. But what's interesting is moving forward is like once the discipline and the correction in our home is done, right, we move forward. It's mercy. Forgiveness, right? It's removed as far as the east is from the rest. And if we look at what God does here for Israel, right? Look at verse 15. Then the people of Israel cried out to the Lord. Remember, they're crying out saying, we're dumb. This is all our fault, God. You warned us of this. And the Lord raised up for them a deliverer, right? That word is very, very intentionally used. It's there to communicate and remind them that there was no way out unless God did something. Raised up a deliverer, Ehud, the son of Gerah the Benjaminite, and left-handed people rejoiced. A left-handed man, the people of Israel, sent tribute by him to Eglon, the king of Moab. God raised up for them a deliverer. God did it. Not chance, not fate, not accident. God did it. Then you go down to verse 28. Look what he says there. 
And he said to them, follow after me, for the Lord has given your enemies, the Moabites, into your hand. So they went down after him, and they seized the fords. These are the same people who were just in slavery. Seized the fords of the Jordan against the Moabites and did not allow anyone to pass over. They seized the fords that killed 10,000 Moabites. Moab was subdued, and what follows is 80 years of peace, prosperity, and rest. And what we see is that in the midst of Israel's rebellion, even though it may be difficult to see that God chose to discipline his people in this way, he still delights in rescuing and delivering them from themselves. That same God delights in delivering his people today. He loves it. He loves to deliver people even still today. You see, Israel consistently run to idols and run away from God. I always, whatever that, I don't know who said this, but my grandfather used to say it, so I attribute it to him, but I'm sure he stole it from somebody. I think it was one of the founding fathers, but it's like the only thing that's true in life is death and taxes. And that Israel would turn from God, right? That should be the third one. But here's the reality, right? And I said this last week. We do the exact same thing. Whether you claim to be a follower of God here this morning or not, whether you've been a Christian for 20, 30, 40 years, you've been a Christian for 20 minutes, or you're not one this morning, the reality is, is all of us do the exact same thing we read about here in the book of Judges. It's true of the entire human race. We've chosen rebellion. We've chosen disobedience. We've chosen idols to run after things and to serve things that do not ultimately bring true joy, hope, and freedom. And here's God's response to that. Right In Romans chapter 1, here's what Paul says about that. He says, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men, who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them, because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world. In the things that have been made, so they are without excuse. For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. You see what Paul's saying there? He's like, hey, humanity's primary problem is they know God exists, but they refuse to recognize his existence. And so therefore, because human beings by design were created for worship and they refuse and reject their God and their creator, they instead run to creation and worship that. Right? Now, some people do that through the occult, like Wiccan or other strange practices, right? New age 
philosophy is like super into this. Like, oh, like I'm just in, I'm, I'm like in with Mother Earth. I don't know what that means. Are you talking to rocks? Some people are like, that's rude. Dude, they're rocks. They are inorganic material. We've like seen the science on it. It's not going to talk back to you. That offends you. Sorry. I, I prefer honesty over lies. Yet God says that consistently, this is what the human race does. They have the creator before them, the creator of all things, and then all the things that he created, they're like, not interested in that, would rather worship what you created. People, that's, one of, that's, that's like the number one idol in the world, guys. Your significant other, your crush, your spouse. Money. Sex. Fame. Power. It's all creation. And if you run after those things, right, Paul says that the wrath of God is being revealed from heaven against all ungodliness. Meaning God in his mercy is disciplining it. He's showing you that you are futile in your thinking and that your foolish heart is darkened to run after anything but him. And that those things ultimately lead to oppression and slavery just like they did for Israel. And yet, right, that's not the end of the story. Right, because in the same way that God delighted in saving Israel, he delights in saving all of his creation. And God calls us to cry out to him like Israel did. And you know what God's response to that is when, we, when you cry out? Like, this is one of the things I, I find just absolutely fascinating about Jesus Christ and the God of the Bible versus every other world religion I've ever studied. Every other world religion kind of starts off with, with a, a similar motif, right? That there's some sort of divine nature out there that we can achieve as long as we work hard enough. Eastern thought kind of talks about emptying of self and getting rid of that till you can achieve that higher state of consciousness, Judaism and Islam teach about the, the reality and the need to continue to perform so that you might appease God. Right, if you study the Northern European religions or Greek or Roman mythology, you see keeping and appeasing the gods consistently. That's your role. And yet the God of the Bible says something completely different to us. As you, you run after creation rather than creator. You enslave yourselves. But where I differ is you can't save yourself out of that. But you know what you can do? You can cry out in mercy and look at what Jesus says about that in Matthew chapter 11. He says, take my yoke upon you and learn from me. For I am gentle and lowly in heart. And you will find what? Rest 
for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. God delights in delivering broken sinners like you and like me. It's his delight. He delights in taking on your yoke, rebellion, slavery, idol worship, and placing it on Jesus Christ. You know how I know that? Christ went to the cross. He took it on himself. And then God delights in having you put on his yoke. Easy, light, restful, merciful, compassionate, full of forgiveness. Just cry out to him. That's all he asks. And the promise in that is rest. Rest from trying to run the rat race and have it all together. Rest from trying to be perfect. Rest from trying to have everyone be happy with you all the time. Rest from always needing more money. Rest from always doing the wrong thing. Because Jesus is the ultimate deliverer. Right, the judge, The beautiful thing about judges is the judges are just foreshadows to the greatest judge and deliverer of all time, and that's Jesus Christ. It's one of the things I love about the Bible is like you, you study human history and you just see it leading up to that point where Jesus does what he came to do. And God finally announces once and for all, you're liberated. The way that Israel longed and looked for liberation, Christ brought it.